I'm Vance going straight to the core. VegCast. For VegCast 84. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, we have another edition of everybody's favorite vegetarian podcastery. And I'm not sure why I said we're going to the core, but uh, there's only so many rhymes that you can use that go with numbers, but uh, we will go with it, especially because it's podcast 84 in the VegCast series, and in a nod to 1984, we're looking at a somewhat totalitarian-esque system of government surveillance that seems to apply almost uniquely to animal activists. We're going to be talking to Dara Lovitz about her book Muzzling a Movement, Uh, and we're also going to hear a new tune from an up-and-coming band called The Faded, who definitely have not faded, and, uh, well, I guess the song may fade, but uh, you'll hear uh, some of their new stuff and learn a little bit about The Faded. We also have a science fact about factory farming, and this is by way of showing that a lot of the evil that we attribute to factory farming is not necessarily uh, something ascribable simply to their massive size and efficiency. So, all that's coming up on VegCast 84, and I invite you, as always, to sit back now, relax, and crank up your MP3 player as we deliver to you this 84th edition of VegCast. Okay, VegCast 84 is sponsored by LightLife, makers of smart dogs, smart ground, and more. Visit them at lightlife.com. Veggie goodness. For you and the planet. And we're going to move right now into our interview with a Philadelphia animal activist and lawyer named Dara Lovitz, who has written a book about the way the government comes down heavy-handed on uh, members of our activist community. And uh, there are a lot of interesting angles on this, as VegCast listeners may well know. I am not a big fan of shack tactics, and yet I am also not a fan of government repression. So how do we split the difference? Let's listen. All right, right now on VegCast, we are pleased to welcome Dara Lovitz, the author of Muzzling a Movement. Dara, welcome to VegCast. Thank you. We are here in your apartment, so it's no great uh, stress on you to be here. But thank you for having me in to record this. So um, before we go into the book itself, can you just tell us uh, a little ba- a little bit about your background, both as a uh, vegan and as a law student and law professor? Sure. I, um, I went vegetarian at about age 12 when I learned about uh, factory farming conditions. Um, apparently, I didn't learn enough because I wasn't vegan at the time. And I was a vegetarian for animal ethics reasons, and um, I just never learned about the dairy and egg industry until much later in life when I was uh, post-law school. I was helping out on a case called Commonwealth versus Esmondshade, in which we prosecuted um, the owner and supervisor of a battery cage facility. And I learned about egg production, and then I learned about dairy production, and the switch to veganism was quite automatic at that point. And frankly, I was disappointed that I hadn't gone vegan earlier when I realized how much dairy and eggs I was consuming as a vegetarian. 
So I was really contributing to a lot of animal suffering for that whole period of time, um, but I didn't come to that until later. Uh, at some point, when I was in law school, I would have liked to have taken an animal law class. It would have very much interested me. So when I became a practicing lawyer and, and doing a lot of pro bono cases for animal rights groups, I, I solicited the dean at Temple Law School and, and inquired about an animal law course and worked with another student who was, uh, worked with a student there to get a petition signed by the other students. And we went through all of the red tape to get the course approved at Temple. And then I followed that template to get the course approved at Drexel. So now I'm the animal law professor at both Temple University Beasley School of Law and the Earl Mack School at Drexel University. Great. And so uh, how do you, I mean, the, you write about the that case uh, that, that turned you vegan in the book, but, uh, I mean, that shows how you're kind of getting your feet wet in the legal practice turned you vegan, how did that uh, that combination then make you say, you know, I've got to write a book, I've got to get all this stuff into a book? Uh, I don't remember when I was actually alerted to the Shack 7 case. Um, it was sometime when it, it must have been sometime in 2005 or 2006, and when I learned about it, I became very much inspired to learn about the law and... Um, try to grapple with what I perceived as inconsistencies with what I learned in constitutional law in law school and what I perceived as an unconstitutional law. I just didn't understand how it could pass and be on the books. And um, a series of, of employment changes were such that I began to have a lot of time to research. And I researched and uh, found that there was certainly enough to write a book, if not more than one. Okay, and you've written a book that... I mean, it does. You do continually return to the Shack Seven and the whole Shack phenomenon, uh, but it is more than that. It, it's about the entire uh, way that U.S. law, as currently formulated, uh, seems to be excessively aimed at uh, shutting down uh, protest or uh, other action uh, on behalf of animals. Is that a fair? Characterization. Yeah, sure. So, um, let's just talk briefly about that. I mean, uh, a lot of people may not even be aware that there are certain basic things that we associate with animal activism, like photographing conditions uh, on any farm that are now illegal, that didn't used to be illegal, but are now illegal. Can you give us a quick overview of of just some of the, the highlights of that or the lowlights <laughs> when uh, those uh, came about? Well, it started in the late 80s, early 90s when there were a series of animal liberation activities in both pharmaceutical vivisection labs as well as uh, what I call pelt industry confinement facilities, fur farms. And once animal activists started to cause a lot of damage, the industries that were being economically damaged by the animal activism assembled, uh, worked with politicians to have certain laws passed. It started out, uh, there was an Animal and Ecological Terrorism Act, a Farm Animal Research and Facilities Protection Act, a series of laws that eventually led up to the Animal Enterprise Protection Act, which became the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. So if you look at the history of animal liberation activity, you see the increase of it. You see the increase of damage done to animal abusive industries so too has the increase of the restrictions in these laws become. 
so then we arrive at the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which seems to restrict, uh, be the most restrictive of all the laws that were, were leading up to it. And it seems to restrict, as applied in the Shack case, even website dissemination of information about animal abusive industries and about activities that have damaged those industries. So it could, it could uh, criminalize website speech, it could criminalize certain things that are already crimes, like low-level property damage crimes, but again, they're already crimes. But this rises to the level of federal crime, which has its whole, uh, which has its whole category of, of harsher treatment to the defendants. And that's why I go into unequal treatment under the law in the book. Can you just, um, one of the most eye-opening parts of the book for me was where you distinguish between, um, I mean, what, what the advantage is to making something a federal law and that a grand jury can be convened and that suddenly a lot of things that we associate with just what happens in a criminal trial uh, are altered. It, can you give us a few mm-hmm. of examples of, of those? Yeah, this, this is actually an important chapter in my book because the unfair treatment of animal activists is most clear when you think about the federalization of these, uh, of these crimes. Again, they would be low-level property crimes, not worth a whole lot in court with regard to the penalties and how long you'd spend in jail. But the second they become a federal law, you have a federal prosecutor involved as opposed to a local DA. You have federal witnesses involved the FBI, other federal agents that are sure to show up when you have a case, as again, opposed to the state courts where the police, the local police, are usually too busy to appear and the complaining witnesses don't tend to appear. The the penalties are much harsher in the federal system. The sentences are much longer. Um, and not only is the prison sentence longer, but the prison to which you would be sent could be anywhere across the country. You could be up to 500, even more miles away from your family. Whereas in state court, if you were going to state prison, you would be within the state and much closer to your family. And, um, and then throughout the process, the, as you said, the federal grand jury procedure is also much harsher. The defendant can't be there to defend him or herself. There's no attorney representation. The prosecutor in the federal grand jury case is uh, his or her own gatekeeper, so there's no judge to say that evidence is acceptable or not acceptable. It all comes in for the grand jury to hear. So that's just a couple of examples of why the federalization of this crime results in unfair treatment to animal activists. Okay. Um, and so, the, as we said before, the focus of the book, uh, uh, at least in terms of where you're finding a lot of the, the case histories, is in the Shack case. And Shack originally was an organization in the United Kingdom, which uh, was formed to attempt to... Uh, shut down hunting to life sciences. Um, they were responsible for certain acts, and I'm trying to distinguish this because then a separate group, Shack USA, was formed. Uh, that when Huntington moved some of its operations to uh, the United States uh, to try to attack uh, the institution here, is that am I? Getting my facts straight so far? Yeah, first it was Huntington Life Sciences is originally, and I think still is, the largest animal testing facility in Europe. And Shack UK was born there. Shack was born in, in the UK at that point. Later, when HLS decided to move a branch to United States, specifically in New Jersey, Shack USA started to combat HLS in, in the United States. Right. Um, and so the, the Shack 7 uh, were essentially activists who were associated with a website that 
uh, activists, different activists used to coordinate information or to get information. Some people were apparently breaking some laws, um, and the rationale was that uh, because there were people like uh, guilt by association, there were people who were doing something associated with this, that the people running the website were somehow to be held criminally responsible for. Is that Yes, under the conspiracy clause of the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. And in conspiracy clauses, you don't have to show that the defendant did the act. You have to show that the defendant acted in furtherance of the act. And in the Shaq case, the claim of the prosecutors was that Shaq inspired these acts. Shaq uh, incited these illegal activities. So their claim was, well, this isn't guilt by association, which, by the way, is unconstitutional. Our courts forbid it. You can't be held guilty just because somebody in your group does something illegal. So the prosecutors know the law, and they're trying to avoid that, um, that, that defense of, well, you can't say that we're guilty by association. So the prosecutors used the conspiracy clause and said, you've conspired to do so. You've acted in furtherance of doing these things by having the website, by having people post anonymous communiques which talked about illegal acts. You're, you're practically endorsing the acts. And there was evidence that there were uh, black faxes and other kinds of electronic civil disobedience arranged on the website, but there was no evidence that anybody acted immediately after viewing the website. In fact, the government's only witness that they had, who was an animal activist who was a who followed Shaq's activities and did send a black fax, so it looks like everything's lining up for the prosecution, when they asked him how much time passed between when you looked at the website and when you actually sent the black fax, months had passed, which which uh, undo the claim that the Shack 7 incited the illegal activity. It has to be imminent, immediate illegal activity that's done from the speech. And in this case, it's obviously not imminent or immediate because months had passed. The activists had time to think about it, time to consult a lawyer or a friend in law school. I mean, there's no way you could, you could draw a claim between that activity and imminence. So the government presented no direct evidence that anybody in Shack did anything illegal. It was all what the government would call circumstantial. And there were a series of things that happened at the trial that, that helped the jury come to this conclusion, even though the evidence, the legal evidence, wasn't really there. For instance, the prosecutor opened using the word terrorism or a, or a derivative thereof, which was completely forbidden, and the judge said you can't do it, but that's how the prosecutor opened the case. And even just planting that word terrorism, the prosecutor knew it, Everybody knew it. That's enough to, to get the jury thinking a certain way. And this is in the opening argument before any of the evidence was presented. So it's, um, it's disappointing that the jury found the way they did, but they were certainly influenced by a whole, a whole slew of different evidentiary allowances that the judge permitted that probably should not have come in if this case were happening under any other courthouse. Okay. Well, it, um, it seems like it would be hard to argue that the government is not overstepping its uh, legal authority in this case. I want to look at it from the the opposite viewpoint now. Um, to what extent might one say that the government's heavy-handedness uh, in creating laws and interpretations of laws might be said to be caused by tactics that are being undertaken, uh, whether or not we'll put off the, ta off the table right now whether such tactics are necessary or not. What, to what extent is this really a, a response to that, and to what extent is it just that they're using it as an excuse for 
you know, just completely uh, undermining people's rights. It's well, it's definitely a response to the activism. I don't think the law, the laws would have been created unless animal activists were starting to really make a dent and really cause harm to these industries. So I do believe it was in response. That doesn't mean that the response is legal or acceptable or constitutional. Yes, it's a response. It's uh, the wrong response legally and constitutionally. I do think as well that as part of the response, the intent is to quell animal activism. Uh, they want to quell criminal behavior for sure, but they also want to quell animal activism, the voice of activists. And I go into the silencing of the animal activist movement by not only the government, but also the media. And that, that does play a large part in the book because I, I believe that's what's happening and that's my concern with this. It's not just that it's unconstitutional, it's that it's unconstitutional and it's, it's harming the animal activist movement. And um, I, I, think, I think in the end the biggest problem is that, yes, it was a response to criminal activity by animal activists. However, those acts, which are crimes, are low-level property crimes under the state code across the country. There are codes that cover these kinds of acts, trespass, vandalism, uh, harassment. They're all covered under state codes. So any other person committing these crimes, not in the name of animal activism, would just be treated like a state defendant. But if you're doing it in the political agenda of animal activism, all of a sudden you're a federal terrorist. So it's, it's I guess it's a response, but they already had the response built into the state laws. But might they say that they have to reach for a, a terrorist designation or for this kind of remedy, given the fact that these, these low-level crimes, this harassment and so forth, is coordinated with a certain objective where terror in some cases literally is being used to try to influence a group of people toward a political uh, a political solution I mean where where exactly do we say that you know some people in England obviously have been uh, attacked physically uh, people here have certainly been threatened uh, they've you know had their homes uh, either vandalized or and surrounded, they've had their you know their children have been exposed and traumatized by things that all seem to be pointed to uh, convincing them to change their behavior on the basis of fear, and that that starts to the layman to get into an area where we'd say, well, that sounds like terrorism. I mean, the Southern Poverty Law Center said the CHAC is is tantamount to a terrorist group. So where do we then? How do we draw that line? True, and those are also covered under state crimes. Is instilling fear in somebody, or fear of imminent bodily harm, or fear of death, is covered in a state crime. The state codes all across the country. Uh, the problem is the government's own definition of terrorism does not fit what animal activists are doing. Even if animal activists are causing people to fear bodily harm or even fear death, it doesn't rise to the level of the federal definition of terrorism one of which is uh, violence is a necessary component. Another category or characteristic of terrorism is mass wanting to um, cause mass casualties to people, not property. Animal activists, if you look at the ALF website, the Animal Liberation Front website, on their guidelines, they promote nonviolence. They don't say that you can't damage property, but they say you should do everything you can to promote nonviolence to all creatures, human and non-human alike. 
And same with the the ELF, the uh, Earth Liberation Fund, Environmental Life Force, whichever name you go by, uh, one is its prior name. But they too, in their guidelines, say they want nonviolence only. They're willing. Animal activists are willing to destroy property, or not all animal, animal activists, but the ones who are typically targeted by these laws are willing to just destroy property, not persons. To the contrary, federal terrorists want to destroy persons, and they couldn't care less about property. September 11th, when you had planes flying into the World Trade Center, that wasn't because they didn't like the buildings, the architectural design of buildings. It was because they wanted to hurt the people inside. And that's a huge distinction between federal terrorists and animal activists who commit certain crimes right well it's true I mean, and obviously uh, you you do continue to point out that it's ironic to be calling uh, this movement violent which is like the one movement which is about nonviolence but I have to wonder how much um, the movement as a whole is um, is undermined in the popular mindset by the actions of people who come across as Violent, and as an example, I will cite uh, a few years back when there were activists outside GlaxoSmithKline, and I was walking home from work. And as these low-level employees who had nothing to do with decision making at GlaxoSmithKline were leaving work, they were out there chanting, "We will not give up the fight. We know where you sleep at night." These people did not have, you know, a grounding in exactly what you know, ahimsa is and who might or might not subscribe to it, They all they knew was that these are people who are angry about the animal thing and they seem ready to commit some unspecified act of violence. Now, from a legal perspective, I can I can see the point that, yeah, they're all they're doing, it's free speech, they can say that. But just stepping back a moment to the larger picture, uh, do you think that that kind of behavior should actually be be condoned, supported, and it should be used going forward. I I don't think that any of the laws that are written should approach those. Like you said, those are threats um, or they're just speech, depending on how the person, what a reasonable person would perceive that speech as. Uh, is it effective? I don't know if I'm in the place to say what's effective because so far I'm not sure anything that the animal movement has been doing has been 100% effective. We live in a world of non-vegans that support animal abuse in all kinds of industries. So I don't know if I could judge an activity and say that it's effective or not effective. I do think, however, that the public at large perceives that as uh, as as somewhat violent, as uh, militant, and that doesn't help any vegans who claim that veganism is about ahimsa and non-violence to all creatures. So there is a little bit of a conflict there, but it's. I think that what they're thinking is that they're weighing um, the abuse of an, that animals undergo and what they could possibly do to stop the abuse. And if that's the, the method that they choose, perhaps they think that's the only effective way. I've seen activists go from peaceful vegan outreach kind of people to militant activists. I've seen people who infiltrate farm factories and uh, get great footage for animal rights groups and then they go into a completely different campaign and I've seen militant activists go into a different campaign for fear of prosecution so I've seen activists change and I don't know if it's because they're changing because their personal feelings have changed or because they think that one method isn't effective but I 
I think our movement has yet to see an effective, a truly effective way. So I, I couldn't possibly sit here in judgment of another activist activity and say that it is or isn't effective or it, it should or shouldn't be done. I don't, I don't think I have enough information as to what should be done. I'm, I'm as frustrated as everybody else, I think. Okay. All right, well, we're, uh, we've kind of go, gone over our time here, but uh, I want to thank you and your cats for having me over, and that is Muzzling a Movement. It's from Lantern Books. And uh, is there a, a web resource that we can direct anybody to? Or Yes, at my website, muzzlingamovement.com. If you haven't bought the book, you can buy it there, and you can also go to Lantern Books' website as well. Great. And we'll have that in the show notes. And thanks, Dara Lovitz, for being on VegCast. Thank you.
Well, it didn't fade, but that is The Faded. Uh, the leader and founder of that band, Gene, is vegan, and that song is Leave Out All the Rest. It's on the Twilight soundtrack, which is available at Hot Topic. Uh, you can also see the video for that song at www.thefaded.com, and also on their site, uh, you can find their tour info. Their next big gig is the Sunset Strip Music Festival on August 28th, and uh, I should mention also that you can hear them on Healthy Voice. Voyager Radio, which is where I found out about him. So thank you, Carolyn. And uh, you can find a link to her podcast uh, on the VegCast main page down uh, underneath our own archives. There's a, a link, a lot of links to other veggie podcasts, which I've been updating lately uh, as I find out about them. And if they're, if you're doing a veg podcast and I don't have it on there, please let me know. Advance at VegCast.com. And, of course, you can also browse through all of the VegCast archives there and see previous features, including this feature, which is entitled Science Our science fact for VegCast 84 is a fact about farming that comes to us by way of an article in the New York Times. This is, again, not exactly a peer-reviewed study. Uh, we did a whole podcast, last podcast, about a peer-reviewed study and had others in there. But this is one about an EPA initiative to find out who is polluting the Chesapeake Bay and what they can do about it. And uh, the answer that they found was that uh, a lot of the pollution in the form of manure and farm runoff was coming from Lancaster County and specifically from Amish farmers. Uh, Lancaster County, of course, uh, in Pennsylvania is the, uh, the bastion of Amish farming with most of the farmers, actually over 50% of the farmers there, uh, being Amish plain sect Farmers. The EPA visited 23 of these farms and found that the vast majority of them were, quote, managing their manure inadequately. And as I pointed out in an Earth to Philly post, there are ways to improve manure handling to mitigate the pollution. But Donald Craybill, a professor at Elizabethtown College who studies the Amish, puts the basic problem succinctly in the Times piece. We have too many animals here per square acre too many cows for too few acres. And as I said, that large number of animals is going to be a problem no matter how you slice it. The massive amount of animal products Americans consume inevitably generates a huge amount of manure as well as a huge amount of many other problems for animals and people alike. And the point of all this is that factory farms, the cruelty of factory farms, the pollution of factory farms, the blah, blah, blah of factory farms uh, is something that we hear all the time, even among many animal advocates. And the whole concept of factory farming is it's so easy to de demonize because it is demonic, certainly. But uh, the whole concept has become kind of a scapegoat where uh, we put all the problems onto there and then just pretend that the rest of the system is okay, as though uh, factory farms were uniquely evil and there was some way to change the system to some idyllic alternative. And, of course, uh, as you'll recall, Jonathan Safran Foer is basically arguing that kind of thing, that if we just all got our, our sourced our animal products from these little 
idyllic family farms uh, where the animals are treated better than Jonathan Safran Foer's dog, then everything would be okay. But it's not okay, even by just this one metric. Uh, if you're going to have feed a lot of people animal products, you're going to generate uh, this amount of manure, and there's just so much that you can do with it. Uh, and after that, it's no longer a matter of uh, being kind or having the right religion or the right approach to technology or anything else. It's just a plain and simple science fact. So next time you find yourself about to say factory farms uh, or factory farming, just be sure that factory actually belongs there. And you're not talking about something that is germane to all of animal farming. And on that note, we're going to wrap up VegCast 84, and VegCast 85 will be along very shortly. I just got back from Vegas, baby, uh, and we're going to do a Vegas VegCast uh, to follow up on that. That's going to come out before the end of June. I promised three podcasts in June, and damn it, we're going to have them, if you will pardon my French. All right, I want to thank our sponsor, Light Life. Light Life makes eating veggie deliciously easy. Join us and be pro-veggie. I also want to thank Dara Lovitz for having me into her apartment uh, with her cats, which are usually very well-behaved, but uh, made for some interesting edits uh, to that interview uh, to uh, talk about muzzling a movement, uh, and that's from Lantern Books. Thanks also to Gene from The Fallen for getting back to me quickly. Uh, after I heard that band and wanted to see if we could squeeze them in here. And thanks, of course, to you for downloading and listening to VegCast. Till next time, get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast.